To say that God allows pain today is not the same thing as saying that he's going to allow it on into infinity. To say that God allows pain today is not to say that it is always his plan for tomorrow and on into the future. In the long term, we know how the story ends. Scripture tells us that every tear will be wiped away in his time. And the kingdom yet to come, there's no hurt, there's no pain, there's no cancer, there's no torment, there's no depression, there's no anxiety, there's none of these things. These things have a shelf life. They will end. You have hope. Now, secondly, in the short term, we also have to remember that not only do the things that afflict us, not only are they for a short term, but we have to remember that as we're undergoing them, God is not indifferent. As we're undergoing these things through this short-term window, God is not indifferent as we do so. He's not indifferent to the hardship you're facing this week. When you pray, he really is listening. He really does care. And one of the proofs of this, one of the great proofs of this is today's text. See, right from the very start of Christ's earthly ministry, what did he do? When God came down in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh, what did he do? Did he retreat to some faraway mountain? Did he say, I am God, everyone's going to have to come to me. We're going to have a red carpet going down the mountain. I'm going to be in this high castle. People will travel up to find me. Is that what he said? No, he does the exact opposite. He went out to seek and to save the lost. He put on his sandals one at a time. He hit the road. And he traveled and he sought out those who were hurting, those who were diseased, those who were depressed, those who were anxious. He deliberately sought out people who no one else was seeking in order to bring them hope and healing and encouragement and demonstrate his love for them. Even while they weren't looking for him, he went looking for them. Why? Because that's what a shepherd does. Shepherds go looking for lost sheep, hurting sheep, sheep who have fallen down, sheep who are broken, sheep who are lost and don't know their way home. This is what Jesus did. This is what his ministry was. He bore all the afflictions, he bore all the people spitting on him, he bore ultimately the cross, he bore all these things in order to redeem people just like you and I, including you and I. God has not abandoned his people in times past or today to the hurts and the problems, to what we're going through. He's not abandoned you to your circumstances. And it's easy to lose perspective of that. It's easy to lose perspective of this and, and to think that God is indifferent for one reason or another. It's easy to lose sight of his promises for tomorrow. But if you do this... If you lose perspective, then you will lose hope, too. If you lose perspective, you will lose hope. But God wants you to know there is light on the horizon. He knows what you're going through. He knows the time that's been allotted for your hardship. He knows it has an end date. He knows what's coming next. He knows what he has prepared for those who love him. He knows, he knows, he knows. And he says to us in this text, and not just in this text, but throughout his word, there is light on the horizon. Your rescue, your restoration, your reconciliation draws near. There is hope. We see that in his ministry. All right, let's look at his ministry. Let's look at verse 23 again, and we're going to work our way through the balance of the text. Okay, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, a great region, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. All right, as we said at the outset this morning, today's reading takes place right at the start of Christ's public ministry. He had just gone through the baptism and the temptation. He just called his first set of disciples from fishing boats and the like. This event, this narrative occurs right near the beginning of his public ministry. It's uh, the end of uh, Matthew 4 and right before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Now, as I've mentioned in other sermons, as I've mentioned more than once, one of the things that always stands out to me, when I consider Christ's ministry, when I consider this guy who went traveling, he went to villages and towns that even the fellow Israelites didn't even know existed. He went to places that were small, he went to places that were great. He went all around Galilee, he went all throughout the region. And as he did so, what stands out to me 
as the unique heart he demonstrated that is a thousand percent different from the pagan gods of his age or of any age. The way in which this God seeks out and sought out in our text an intimate relationship with the people who are considered the most worthless in society. There is no God of antiquity like this. When you think of the pagan gods, most of us were brought up in a Western culture, so when we think of pagan gods, we think of the Greek gods. We think of gods like Zeus. Well, when you picture Zeus, do you picture Zeus the intimate, Zeus the loving, Zeus the caring, Zeus who stoops down on bended knee to wipe tears away? Is that the Zeus that comes to mind? Probably not. What you think of is Zeus high on the top of Mount Olympus in a place where mortals cannot go. He's up there, and what does he do? He throws down lightning bolts from afar. This is Zeus. It's not Zeus the tender, Zeus the compassionate, Zeus the empathetic. No one's ever said that. That might be the first time those words have ever been used in a sentence. That is not the Zeus we know. And furthermore, none of the pagan gods work that way. It doesn't matter who you come up with, Apollo, any of the others. When you think of the Baals of Scripture, good golly, were the Baals known for their care and their touch and their compassion? Is that what the Baals are known for? Absolutely not. The Baals were, were known for was things like human sacrifice. The gods of the Aztecs, the same thing. By contrast to all of that, our God stands out. This Christ stands out. His actions were unprecedented. There's no God before or since who's acted this way. A God who sought out lepers. Who did this? What sort of, of deity of antiquity has done this? None. Jesus sought out lepers. He sought out the disease. He sought out the weak. He sought out the sickly. Furthermore, he sought the rebels, he sought the sinners, he sought the wayward. He didn't just seek out the ones who had gotten right with God first. Remember, that's the, the great mantra. The reason you're having these problems in your life is because you have done something wrong. Ergo, you need to get right with God, and then, and then he will shower his love upon you. Then things will start going right. You need to get right with God. We have all heard this phrase. Well, this is not, this is not the God we see in Scripture. These folks in verse 23 through 25, the disease and the hurting and the sickly, they weren't looking for God. They weren't trying to get right with God. They were just trying to live another day. What they needed was not someone to come and tell them to clean up their lives and only then would God love them. What they needed was charity. They needed a, a tender healer. They needed grace and mercy. Jesus sought them out. Jesus touched, put his arms around, comforted those who people had never comforted. People had never been willing to engage with. There's no other... Before sense, we can lay claim to this approach. You know what a deity we can compare to? This morning, I don't know where all you are in matters of faith, but if you're on the outside looking in at Christianity, I want you to consider this. Jesus Christ, the central figure of Christianity, Jesus Christ is unique among all the potential gods of this world in his charity and mercy for those who are hurting, in his genuine desire to hold you close. He is unique. He is unique among all the other options. Zeus, Baal, Apollo, they wouldn't have the time of day for you. But Christ does. Christianity says that even when, when hurting, dying people aren't looking for Jesus, that he went throughout the countryside looking for them in today's text. Isn't that the sort of God you want? Why would anyone want anything less than that? If you're hurting, if you're, if you're lost this morning, don't you want a shepherd who seeks you out? Isn't this desirable? If you're riddled by disease, if you're stained by sin, don't you want a shepherd who loves you anyway? brings healing and change in his arms. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which is a gospel of grace and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Not just some, not just the things that the charlatan faith healers claim to heal, but everything. Things that boggled the mind of those who witnessed it. Everything. He healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Okay, let's look at verse 24 now. Verse 24. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And there's no sense here that he healed just some of them, or he healed only those who, whose works demonstrated that they deserved to be healed. He healed all of whatever afflicted them. Now, again, we've made the case for the uniqueness of Christ's ministry and his person. In verse 24, we see that his ministry was additionally unique because of its efficacy and its accomplishments. No one had ever done this. It's not just unique that he would want to do it, that he would want to have a mindset that was different from all the gods of yore. That's not alone what makes it unique. What makes it unique is that he was doing things that no one ever had done. No prophet or no false religion had ever just waltzed into town and done this. And because he had done this, and because it was verifiable by all those who saw it, his fame spread. In Christianity, this is not just a pipe dream. It's based on evidences, eyewitnesses. His fame genuinely spread, not just throughout Israel and Palestine, but into Syria, up to the north. That's what we see here. Verse 24 says that his fame went throughout all Syria. People were talking about this. This man's unique gifts and abilities, even if they didn't totally understand his person, even if they didn't totally understand the, the messianic nature of his being, they understood that no one does this sort of thing. You know, they had false faith healers in their day as well. They had people, you throw a couple of shekels in a jar and someone will wave a wand over your head and, and promise you that all your troubles have gone away. They had those sort of people, just as we do in our own day. But no one, no one could do or had done what this Jesus did. And because of that, his fame spread far and wide. The fact that it cites Syria here in particular suggests that his fame wasn't limited just to a few bergs around the Galilean region. But rather, there were people in far and distant lands, up to the north, out to maybe the corners of the then modern world, who were hearing tell of this one, of this Jesus. Now, why were they hearing tell? Because, again, he was doing stuff that no one had ever seen. It's one thing to wave a cookie wand over someone and say, you've been healed of some sort of, of inner concern that no one can verify. It's another thing to heal the leper. It's another thing to heal the blind, the paralytic, the demon-possessed. These sort of healings, they stood out to the eyes of a watching world and verified the legitimacy, the divinity of the one who did it. And because this was happening, people were traveling great distances to find him. People were traveling great distances to seek out his aid and his assistance, as I'm sure you and I would if we were in a like circumstance in this day. You know, if in our own day, if in our own day, there was a doctor somewhere on the globe or a physician who could heal every last illness, every last disease, just a word or a touch. If there was someone who was doing that in the here and now, people would be lined up a thousand miles deep for just a, a word, just a quick meeting with such a one. I think that's the first century equivalent of what this text says. His fame spread. People from regions near and far were coming to meet with this one, to search him out. They're dropping everything. Why? Because their circumstances were that dark and that desperate. And if there was someone somewhere that could help them, they would find him and fall before him and ask for mercy, ask for help. But that said, what about the people who weren't so desperate? What about the people of Christ's day who weren't so desperate? 
Now, I think it's interesting that verse 24 doesn't say this. It doesn't say, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the rich people, and those who were afflicted with wealth and prosperity, and those who had a perfect life with no hurts and pains, and he congratulated them. That is, of course, not what we see. Now, now why doesn't verse 24 mention those people? Now, there had to have been people that were doing all right. I mean, so why doesn't verse 24 mention those people and say those people came to him? I want you to think on this for a minute. There had to have been people in the time of Christ who admit maybe life had been bad at some time in the past, maybe bad sometime in the future, but at the moment everything was going okay. There had to be these people. Why doesn't verse 24 mention them coming to him? Why does it say the people who everything was going just fine came to him? Why does it say that people come to Jesus out of their abundance? Why weren't people coming to Jesus because they were so darn happy? Why does it say any of that? Well, in my own experience in pastoral ministry, people rarely turn to God. People rarely turn to God when things are going great. When things are going fine, when things are going great, when things are going fine, the only God people desire is the one they see in the mirror. Because that's the one who has put them in the position in which they're at, in which they feel strong and secure. Again, verse 24 makes no mention whatsoever of people turning to God out of their abundance or because they're so thrilled with life. Instead, we see people turning to him out of desperation and out of need. And when they did so, I'll speak to the motivation again in a moment, but when they did so, how did this one, how did this Jesus respond? Did he give them a, a divine stiff arm? Did he tell people to get lost? Did he tell some people to get lost? Not at all. You see, he invited them close and he healed all of them of whatever it was that ailed them. This morning... If we're hurting, we should know this, that God can and does and will use our own hurts to bring us to himself in ways that all the prosperity of the world never could. The fact you have problems in your life today is not necessarily the bad thing you think it is. I guarantee you there are people who are here in church this morning and people who are in churches around the globe because there's something tough going on in their lives and they feel compelled to turn to God to seek out his face. I guarantee you that many of the same people, whether it's here or in other churches, would not necessarily be in church this morning if everything was going swimmingly. Depression, cancer, leprosy, paralysis. Time and time again, Scripture says that these exact sort of terrible things have always been the red carpet on which people find grace, on which people find Christ. Time and time and time again. Now, you and I, I know we don't think that way. You and I have had our fill of death and depression. You and I are tired of all the hurts and pains of this life. But the fact that we're tired of them, the fact that we hate the hurts and pains of this life, the scripture tells us that's the point. You see, when you and I finally learn, when we finally learn to seek the upward call of Christ, when we finally look to the kingdom to come rather than try to carve out utopia in a war zone in the here and now, when we finally learn this, when we finally get this, We'll have the first concrete boulder that will prop up our orthodoxy, our understanding of God and man. When you and I finally come to the end of ourselves, it's then that we'll look for the arms of God. When we finally stop believing in our own strength, it's then that we'll turn to His. When we finally stop trying to make everything perfect in our own life, in our own yard, in our own family, in our own finances, in our own job, when we stop trying to carve out that utopia is when we'll start looking to the world to come. If God loves you, He will not only allow these moments to occur, if God loves you, he will not only allow these moments to occur, but he will ordain them. And he will unfold them into his plan. These hardships, these difficulties. If God loves you, he will not only allow tough circumstances to develop and to form and, and to be on our horizon, either far or near. He will not only allow this to happen, but he will ordain it to be so. And he will use and he will fold these things in his plan and use these things to draw us to himself. How do we know this? Because he's always done it this way. That is what was happening in this day. 
the people that were seeking out Christ, the people who were learning most about him, the people who had the opportunity to be embraced by Christ were those who came to him out of need. That is the number one basis under which most people come to God, to Christ, to church, is out of some sort of need. And because of this, can you say that God ordains bad things to happen to bring out good things? Yes. And if you disagree with that, then what do you do with the cross? The cross, you could argue, is the most hideous blight, the most hideous travesty has ever occurred on the face of this earth. And God absolutely ordained that it occur, that it would occur in order that you and I might be saved. God can does use difficult things in order to assist, to aid, to help, to rescue, to reconcile. Now, that doesn't mean that any of it's easy. It doesn't mean that any of this is easy. Life can be hard. For many of us, life is hard today. But Jesus himself, God himself, when he came to this earth, he knew this, he recognized it, he recognized the hardships of his day, and he didn't go to the top of a mountain to live in a stone monastery alone to avoid these things. But rather, he entered right in the midst of the crucible of people's pain to endure that pain with them in order that they might be saved, in order that you and I might be saved, in order to redeem fallen men and women like you and I, Jesus. He came down from the throne to embrace a cross. He went on a rescue mission into a choppy sea filled with sickly dying humanity. You know, that's a God I can love. The God that does this, the God that doesn't sit on top of Mount Olympus throwing down the occasional lightning bolt, but rather the God who stoops, who condescends, who places his everlasting arms around rebels, around children who have gone any number of different directions. The fact that this God does this out of love and compassion and empathy and patience, that's a God I can more than readily love in return. And that's not a God I want on the shelf in the days before me. How about you? How about you? Let's look at verse 25. Now, great multitudes followed him. It's understandable they would, given what he did. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. There were people coming to find him in order to seek out his aid from far distant regions. And when they did so, the multitudes followed him. This is interesting. A great number came to him. They were helped. And what was their response? They followed him. They didn't just say, well, thank you very much, Mr. Jesus. I'll, I'll be on my way now. It's getting late. What did they do? He and she who had been helped by Jesus, they followed him. That's how we got disciples. Remember, disciples is not the same thing as apostles. Of apostles, we have 12, but of disciples, we have a multitude. People were following them. So great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You know, a number of years ago, I think it was in college, I saw a magician once. I saw this magician. And he did the old, the old trick. He, he pulled a rabbit out of a hat. So now, I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never seen it in person. And it was kind of cool, you know. One minute, there's just a hat. And the next minute, there's a rabbit coming out of a hat. So I thought, ooh, that's, that's pretty nifty. I still, to this day, I've never Googled it. So I don't know exactly how he did this thing. But it was, it was pretty cool. But you know what? When he was done, the magician, you know, he folded up his cape and such. And he put, put it in his backpack. And he put it on his backpack over his shoulder. And then he went out. And he went over to his car. And he got in his car. And he drove off. Guess how many people followed him? Nobody, nobody follow the magician who pulls a rabbit out of a hat. Now, why? Because that's a parlor trick. It's no big deal. We know it's no big deal. We like to have our senses fooled. We like the sleight of hand. We think it's kind of groovy when someone does this. And yet, no one's following this magician, Magician Joe, around the countryside to see what he's going to do next. Jesus was different. These were not parlor tricks that this one was doing. 
When the, the Israelites, when they saw leprosy being cured, when they saw blind people being given sight, when they saw demon-possessed people, people who, who clearly had, had issues far beyond the temporal, when they saw these sort of people cured, they knew this is the real deal. Even John the Baptist wasn't doing these things. To be clear, everybody knew that John the Baptist was from God. And yet John wasn't doing this. Why? Because one greater than John had come. Now, why did Jesus do these sort of miracles? Why did he do it? You just stand back and go, okay, he did it. That's wonderful and cool and nifty and all that, but why? Why did he do it? Well, there's two reasons that come at least immediately to mind. The first reason is this, that Christ's miracles testified to his divinity. Christ's miracles set him apart because no one else was doing these things. Christ's miracles testified to his divinity. When he did these things, when he healed the sick, when he healed the blind, when he healed the paralytic and the demon-possessed and the like, it validated, it verified that he was who he said he was. It verified that, that he was from on high. In John 10, Jesus himself would declare this very point. He would say this. He would say, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, meaning if I do things like healing the sick and restoring the sight and the like, if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Christ himself says the works bear witness that he was from God. They bear witness that he was God. I am in the Father. Now, second reason they did these miracles is because he genuinely loved those he performed them for. He genuinely loved those that he was helping. The reason he healed a, a blind man was because he loved a blind man. That's that straightforward. I mean, he did it on one hand to verify he was who he said he was, and yet, when someone came before him, when a parent had a child, a sickly child, maybe even a dying child, and took the child and placed it in Christ's arms, did Christ just kind of, hmm, frown, you know, all right, you know, boop, and it's going to get on its way? No. Imagine what Jesus in that moment. What would he have done? Imagine these everlasting arms cradling a child, holding a child close, maybe speaking soft words in the child's ear, pronouncing the child healed, smiling, extending the child back to his parents, and then reveling in that joy of that moment as the parents had their child who they thought was lost, sick, dying, restored to them in health. In those moments, you can just imagine that the heart of Christ, so to speak, just full, full of joy, not only to do the work because it proves something, but to do the work because he wanted to do it. And he wanted to bring this sort of healing, this sort of joy to those that he brought it to. Jesus did what he did because he genuinely wanted to do it. That's the reason God does anything. God has never brought kicking and screaming to the sovereign choices that he makes. He does what he does because he wants to do it. Now, there may be a lot of complex motivations to some of this, like the cross, and yet, God never has done something that he generally did not want to do, and he's never done something that didn't have his own glory in view. In any case, Jesus genuinely loves to help those who are hurting. In the same way, when we turn to Jesus out of our own hurts and pains, when you turn to God, let's say you've got something on your radar, maybe there's some hurt, some anxiety, some fear you've got in your life right now. When you come to God with these concerns, you don't have to worry. It's like taking a number at the DMV. It's not like I just have to file my complaint, I send this bureaucratic form up to God, and maybe he'll see it, maybe he won't, maybe he'll rubber stamp it, maybe he'll send it back to me. That's not the way God works. God genuinely loves it when we come to him with our needs and our anxieties and our hurts and our fears and our doubts. He genuinely loves it when we lay our concerns down before him, when we unburden ourselves before him. He loves it, and he has compassion and empathy for us when we do so. And he has genuine compassion and empathy over what we're going through. 
Now, that's not to say that the outcome we desire from every given circumstance is the same outcome he has appointed. It's not to say that we know better than him what we need and what his sovereign plan ought to be. But it is to say that even when we don't understand, and even when God undertakes choices or decrees something that is outside of our immediate desire, it is to say that he still loves us infinitely when he does so. And that there's more compassion and love even in the choices he makes that we don't understand. Sometimes that which is obvious and the things he does that we do understand. Sometimes as parents, the hardest love you can show for your children is to do something they don't get and they don't understand. To make a choice you know is for their welfare, that you know in this moment they can't grasp. In any case, when we come to God, when we come to him out of our hurts and our anxieties, he is not a distant and aloof God. He is not Zeus on the mountaintop. Rather, he is like the father of the prodigal son. When we come to him, he rushes across the field, his arms open wide. He wraps us up in his arms. And just like the parable of the prodigal son, he kisses us upon our neck. He gives us every last thing. From his signet ring to the fatted calf, he withholds nothing back. This should be a great encouragement because scriptures replete, replete with statements that indicate this sort of love for you and I. How often we forget it. Jesus himself is familiar with our, our trials and travails. He's familiar with stubbed toes. Jesus caught colds. Jesus was hurt. Jesus had all manner of difficult things across his path. Ultimately, of course, he endured the cross. He can relate to what we're going through. And as he relates, as he relates, he, he conveys his love to us. And he says, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you can be comforted for I am with you. I know what it's like. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can be comforted. I am with you, and I've brought my rod and staff. And there's nothing in the world around you, no wolf, no enemy, nothing that can overcome me. And you are in my hands. All right, as we wrap up this morning, I want to return to something that we read in verse 23 of today's text. Specifically, verse 23 reminded us that Jesus not only healed folks, but he also preached the gospel of the kingdom. You know, if all Jesus did was heal folks. If that's all his ministry was, was just a healing ministry, I think he would have gotten along with everyone just fine. If Jesus had just walked around, all right, he's boop, 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 and he's just healing folks, and maybe he's, he's feeding you know, the 5,000, the bread and the loaves, and that's all he did. He just stood back and, and did these sort of nice things. If that's all he did, I think he would have gotten along just fine with everyone. I don't think there would have been a cross in view. I think people would have followed him everywhere looking for this free meal and smiled and nodded when they received it. However, it's not what Christ did that would ultimately get him nailed to a cross. It's what he said. It's what he said. And verse 23 reminds us that he didn't just heal, but he preached. He opened his mouth and he brought truth to bear on people's choices, on people's circumstances. You know, people loved the things he did, but it's what he said that ultimately angered him. In our own day, it's no different. Everyone likes the Jesus who, who has the meals, and everyone loves the Jesus who is inclusive to everyone and gives everyone everything and doesn't in any way convict them of anything. Everyone loves Jesus the physician. Everyone loves Jesus the shepherd who's always one step ahead of them, kind of clearing the path. Everyone loves that Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus the friendly miracle guy. Everyone loves that Jesus. What they reject is Jesus the king. They reject a Jesus who not only has the authority and the power over them, but who has the desire to implement his will on their lives. This Jesus, this Jesus who is not only a physician, not only a shepherd, not only a friend, but a king, and a king who has laws we are to follow, laws that often disagree or come into conflict with what we want. This is the Jesus that the first century didn't like. This is the Jesus that they nailed to a cross, and this is the Jesus that is overwhelmingly rejected throughout so much of today's world. 
People don't mind a free lunch, but they don't want to bend the knee to the one who gave it to them. The first and foremost aspect of Christ's ministry was not the miracles. It was important. It did validate that he was who he said he was. But the first and foremost aspect of Christ's ministry was not the miracles. It was testifying, testifying to God the Father's will for their lives. It was testifying to mankind's problems of sin. And it was reminding people that leprosy and cancer, that was the least of their problems. Now, people didn't understand that. Suffering from leprosy or cancer is no small thing. But that was the least of their problems. When Jesus came, he told them that. And he preached about issues like sin and death. He talked about hell more than anybody else. He talked about condemnation and the wrath of God. He talked about these things. So often these are the things that the modern church is just avoiding or ignoring or watering down. But it was the focal point of his ministry. He came not just to save people from tough circumstances. He came to save them from sin and death. And that is ultimately what the cross is all about. You neglect it, you forget it, you water it down, you put it to the side. You're robbing God of his glory for the great redemptive work he has undertaken. If you strip mine that out of his message. If Jesus really loved people, it wasn't just healing their wounds that was the issue. If Jesus really loved people, then he needed to be honest with them. He needed to be honest with them. He needed to tell them that the fact they were sick to begin with was because there was something wrong with their soul. I've said it before, but the fact that we have gray hair, the fact we're getting older day by day, the fact that new diagnoses will pop up on our radar today or in the time yet to come indicates that we have a problem. When I was a chaplain in the hospital, all the rooms were filled with sick people. Now, what was the common denominator behind every single sickness, no matter what it was? Sin. Sin is the reason we grow sickly. Sin is the reason we grow old. Sin is the reason we die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus brought this to the forefront. When he preached, when he taught, he said, this thing, this blindness, this leprosy, this, this demon possession, all these things are indicative of a greater problem. And that is the problem that I've come to address. You know, Jesus was honest about this. And the minute he was honest, the minute he got real with people, uh, that's the minute they got mad. And this is the issue in the modern church. When you tow that line, when you tow the Jesus line, when you tell people how it is and you don't shirk away from what the book has to say, people don't really like that. They want to hear about how they're going to have their best life now. Jesus says your best life now is not the issue. The kingdom to come, everlasting life, that is what I've come to bring. And of all you'll watch the trinkets and baubles of this world and the God of this age will give it to you. But I've come to give you something greater. This morning, do you want Jesus a miracle man or Jesus a king? What do you see? This morning, do you want to accept Jesus just on your own terms, based on your own wants and whims and desires? Do you want to whittle down God's word to those parts that you like the best? Do you want to define Christianity in a way that just comforts you and never convicts? I ask this rhetorically speaking, but this is the plague of our age. This morning, do you only want God's miracles in your life or do you want God himself? my experience, I found that everyone wants God's blessings, but few genuinely want Him. In the same way, you know, everyone wants to get to heaven. Few people want God to be there when they get there. How about you? How about you? Where do you stand? This morning, whatever your circumstance, whether you're coming to Jesus out of your own perceived strength, or you're coming to Him out of a very obvious weakness, He stands ready. His arms are open. There is love and healing that abounds. There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is grace greater than all our sins. This morning Christ's arms are open wide you and on. He longs to provide the welcome and the warmth that we need. But at the same time, he wants to remind us in this text that whatever we perceive our needs to be, 
that so many of them are just skin deep and that our true needs, our spiritual needs go beyond our, our health, they go beyond our, our wallet, they go beyond our vocation, they go beyond our relationships with our fellow man. What we need this morning more than anything is a relationship with the one who has made us. And it is found and made possible through the reconciliation of the Son. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.